You're listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. Good evening, everybody. Hello. Hey, uh, what is the dominant belief as far as how to attain eternal life in America, and we could say the world, it is uh, statistically by works, by something that you do, by uh, like paying off your karmic debt, by reincarnating, by praying in a certain direction, by uh, maybe even following the Ten Commandments. Predominantly, that's the belief on how to attain eternal life, on how to get to heaven, is by works, by doing things. And there's a lot of if you go on the internet, a lot of statistics on this, there's a lot of different studies on what Americans believe about eternal life and how to have it. And they're all, the numbers are all a little different, but they paint the same picture of that. And uh, even though it seems like salvation by faith, maybe Christianity 101, like that's one of the foundations of Christianity, the dominant belief is salvation by works. So here's, here's the picture of the American belief on salvation. Um, only about 10% of Americans have no belief in life after death. So almost every American has some sort of life after death belief. About three quarters of Americans believe in heaven, and about the same number believe in hell. So that's interesting. Uh, now this doesn't surprise me. Of The percentage of Americans who believe they are going to hell is very small, under 1%. It's like half of 1% of Americans believe that they're going to hell. But three-quarters of Americans believe there is a hell. So most people don't think they're going to hell if they believe in it. 64% of Americans believe they will go to heaven. And here's, here's the startling number. Amongst self-proclaimed, born-again believers, about half believe you can get to heaven by good works, hey, by doing things. Hey, uh, that There's Jesus, but there's also multiple ways to heaven, multiple ways to eternal life. And you can earn your salvation. And this is a lot of reasons for this. I remember growing up, going through a Lutheran confirmation class in junior high. And I came over that it's not the church's fault. It's my fault. I didn't understand it. But my belief was that Jesus made salvation possible, but then you still had to earn it. And uh, again, this is half of born-again, self-proclaimed born-again believers think that you can get to heaven by your good works. And this is what Jesus talks about in Matthew 7. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Jesus says the way to life is very narrow, but statistically the picture we see in our culture is we think the, the gate is very wide, and that most people go to heaven by being a good person, and most people think they're good people. Again, it's under 1% of people think that they're going to hell. And so we believe, culturally, it's a very wide gate to heaven, but Jesus says it's very narrow and it's difficult, and very few find it. And he also says in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And biblically, clearly the picture of salvation is by faith, not by works. That's the whole point of Jesus' sacrifice is he is the way, the truth, truth, the truth, the truth and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through him. But again, there's this huge belief that you have to do something to earn your salvation, that there's Jesus plus something else, but Jesus plus anything ruins everything. It's salvation is completely by faith in Jesus. And so that belief may come from underemphasizing faith as Christians. I think sometimes we maybe get focused on, you have to do this, you have to do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. And it can give the impression that there is work involved in your salvation. Um, maybe where that belief comes from. So we can over or underemphasize faith 
as Christians, but also sometimes we overemphasize faith. And this has led to a different problem of nominal Christianity, it's called, that you say you're a Christian, but you don't live a life that reflects that you've laid down your life, picked up your cross, and followed Jesus. And that's about two-thirds of American adults would be considered nominal Christians, that you know, professing some sort of belief in Jesus, but not really living in a biblical way, we could say. And so there's a, there's a problem here of underemphasizing faith, and you have to do this, have to do that, but there's also a problem of overemphasizing faith where there's nothing at all about Christianity except some sort of mental belief that a guy named Jesus existed 2,000 years ago. And when we, what we'll study tonight in Romans chapter 4 is that God has always justified people by faith, only by faith, never by works, going all the way back to Abraham. Okay, Paul brings up uh, is the first one justified by faith, the first person, really, he calls him the father of our faith, because he's the first one who had faith in God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. And that's always been God's plan, to justify people by faith. So we talked about this last week as well, because now Paul, in the context of Romans, he you know, introduces the idea that the just shall live by faith. The whole letter is about that sentence. And then he goes and spends a few chapters condemning people, and saying, you're all sinful, you have no works to stand on, because the, you know, this is the type of person you are. We started last week looking at the idea of justification. And now Paul has sort of switched focuses to not condemnation, you're all sinners, but justification, you are all legally, or you can be legally declared righteous by God. That's what justification means. Uh, I think of it like marriage, that marriage does not give you more love, it's a legal standing. It just like justification does not make a person inwardly righteous. It's a legal declaration of righteousness that God sees you as righteous. That's justification. And it's always been by faith, never by works. And because God has always justified by faith, we have to put our faith in God's plan of redemption for justification, not in our works. So the big idea tonight is kind of contrasting these two ideas of faith versus works. Because again, that idea of works is so predominant, even amongst Christians, that there's some work involved in your salvation, that this is like foundational to our understanding of Christianity and the work of Jesus. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of stuff here. We're going to go through all of chapter 4 today, because it's all kind of one thought. And last week, at the end of chapter 3, was Paul, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was explaining the idea of how we are justified by faith from... God's point of view, how it works for where God sees it. Tonight in chapter 4, it's kind of justification from a human point of view. And that we look, we look for justification either by faith or by works, and how that works out. And then Paul uses Abraham as an example. So what we're going to do first is read all of chapter 4. These are going to read, read the Bible for a little bit. It's a whole chapter, so get ready for that. And then uh, pull out some ideas here and, and look at some things. Let's read the whole chapter first, uh, and then we'll go into it and explain it. So Romans chapter 4, the idea of faith versus works and how we are justified only by faith. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only? Or upon the uncircumcised also. For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. 
Before we go on, let's explain that. A lot of circumcision talk right here. It gets kind of confusing. Um, and so, again, Paul is going back to Abraham, the first person that God called to be one of his people. We'll look at that more in a minute. And as part of his calling, God said uh, circumcision was kind of like the sign of their covenant, of God's covenant he made with Abraham. As a sign of that, you're going to circumcise all the, your male relatives. It's, it's a little bit similar to baptism today as Christians. It's a sign of the covenant that God has made with us. And what Paul is writing here is that Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. And all this circumcision talk is, is Paul is saying, when God called Abraham to be his, one of his people to start the Israelite nation, Abraham was still uncircumcised. And so there is a big belief that circumcision gave you salvation in the Jewish culture. And if Abraham was accounted righteous by faith when he was uncircumcised, then he's saying that doesn't have anything to do with it, that uh, both the circumcised and the uncircumcised are counted righteous by faith. And that was not the dominant belief in that culture. It was about works, just like in our culture. We don't think it has anything to do with circumcision, but we have our other things. And so that's what he's talking about, that... Uh, it was before circumcision that righteousness was accounted to Abraham. So let's continue finishing up the chapter. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, in the presence of him whom we believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body, already dead since he was about a hundred years old, in the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to perform, and therefore was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who is delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. So there's a lot, a lot there. And culturally, we're very different from first century Jews who Paul was primarily writing to and Gentiles. And uh, so he, he goes back to Abraham to show that God has always justified people by faith. It's never been by works. So let's first look at the faith of Abraham from the book of Genesis, so we understand exactly what he's talking about here, why he's bringing up Abraham about all this. Spends, there's a lot of writing about one guy in here, about Abraham. And uh, so we'll look at that and then connect it to what he's talking about. So Paul uses Abraham as an example of justification by faith because if anyone could have been justified by their works, by obeying God's laws, by doing good things, if anyone could have been justified that way, it would have been Abraham. So he's, he's the example. If Abraham is justified by faith, everyone is justified by faith. Because it's really hard for us to, to think today how highly the Jewish culture esteemed Abraham in those days, how highly they revered him, almost godlike he was to them. Not quite. I mean, obviously, their number one belief was there is one God. right? But the, Abraham was held in very, very high regard. And it was because... He, they thought he was considered righteous by his works, that he obeyed God's laws. And Paul here is completely undermining that and saying, no, it wasn't his works, it was his faith that made him righteous. In the, there's a Jewish book called the Book of Sirach, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but it was written about 200 years before Jesus. And even though it's not in the Bible, but it was very popular in that time, and even in the Book of James in the New Testament, it's quoted and here's a, a section of that about Abraham that shows you how highly people thought of Abraham as far as his works. And it says this, Abraham was the great father of a multitude of nations, and no one has been found like him in glory. He kept the law of the Most High 
and entered into a covenant with him. And so it's saying that Abraham kept the law. He kept God's laws. He was completely righteous in his works. And entered into covenant with him. He certified the covenant in his flesh. That's circumcision. And when he was tested, he proved faithful. Therefore the Lord assured him with an oath that the nations will be blessed through his, his offspring, that he would make him as numerous as the dust of the earth and exalt his offspring like the stars and give the, them an inheritance from sea to sea and from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. And so again, the Jewish belief at the time, Abraham was righteous by his works. He obeyed God's laws. And that's why God promised to bless him and his family for all generations. That was the belief. But Paul here in Romans 4 is saying that was not the case. He was considered righteous before he even did anything. So let's look at the faith in the life of Abraham. You know, when you study Abraham in Genesis, is where you read about Abraham, I would say he has three main faith successes. And there's, there's some more. And then a couple faith failures. I mean, Abraham is not... God, he, the people in the Bible except Jesus are not, never perfect, which is one of the things I love about the Bible. So his faith was not perfect, but there's a few things. I mean, he did have an extreme amount of faith. First of all, first of Abraham's successes is following God's call, the call on Abraham's life. And if you imagine Abraham's situation, he lived in the city of Ur, which is the best name for a city, Ur, U-R, very simple. And Ur at the time of Abraham, or Ur, I don't know how you say it. Yeah, I like saying Ur. Uh, yeah, Ur. Uh, that was perhaps the biggest city in the world at the time. It was in like the top three biggest cities. We don't know for sure, but there's been a lot of archaeological studies of Ur. It was part of Babylon. And when Abraham lived there, it was one of the biggest cities in the world, very affluent in you know, the arts and all the things, how we would think of a city in our culture, not exactly the same, but it was the center of everything. The culture came from there. It was where you know, everyone, it was a big city. And he got a call, man. And so Abraham lives in this big city. Out of nowhere, he hears a voice saying, you know, follow me. He, there was no one following God on the earth at that time. And this is after Adam and Eve, after the flood. And Abraham was the first person God called to be one of his people. And even us today, that's why Paul calls us in Romans today, Abraham is the father of our faith. He's the first one who had faith in God, and that's continued on to this day. And that's why we sing, Father Abraham had many sons. You know that song? For some reason you do that left arm. I don't get that part, but, yeah. but that's the meaning behind that song. And uh, he's the first one who believed God. And God told Abraham, move from Ur and go to a land called Canaan, the promised land, and go move there. And there was nothing there. It was rural. There was hardly any towns. Uh, so, I mean, we might think today, it's like moving from New York or L.A., moving to like Wyoming or something, the middle of nowhere. No offense if you're in Wyoming. Hey, uh, I grew up in North Dakota, so I know what it's like. And uh, just going there and not saying you're getting anything by going there, you just, you go there. There's not like a job lined up for you. There's not something for going there. You need to go there. So, in Genesis 12, this is what God said to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, leaving behind all of his family, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so what did Abraham do when he hears that? There's no one, there's like no other... Jewish people, or there's no other people of that faith. He's a Gentile, he's a pagan, probably worshiping some other false gods. And Abraham goes. He leaves Ur, the center of civilization, and goes way off, like a thousand miles, to the land of Canaan, because God asked him. So that's faith. And by faith, he was accounted righteous. It wasn't what he did, he believed what God told him. So he responded to God's call. And you know, when I read about that, I think about my life, and probably you can relate to this if you've moved in your life. And I think, you know, I grew up in North Dakota, like I just said, about a thousand miles away. And I, I lived there most of my life, went to college there to be a teacher. And I went to a job fair at the college I went to for teachers. And I went around interviewing to all the, the uh, school districts that were there to find a job. I was going to graduate later that, that semester. And we were pretty wide open. 
Hey, we weren't going to be like, no, we've got to stay in North Dakota. We were saying we could go pretty much anywhere. We weren't Christians at the time. And I went around and interviewed with Elko County School District, Nevada, for some reason. And I had a good feeling about it. And they called me a couple weeks later, someone from Jackpot, and offered me the job. And, well, I had an interview, accepted the job. And I accepted it without ever going to see Jackpot or driving out here. After I accepted the job... Then I gave, yeah, that might be a good thing. But hey, I love Jackpot. I lived there a couple years. So uh, I, I, I got that job. I went through the interview. I was hired as the English teacher, the high school English teacher. And then we came out here a couple weeks later to check it out. I'd already accepted it. And again, we weren't Christians at the time. But you know, seeing how God has worked this all out is where I'm getting at. Um, so we lived in Jackpot for a couple years. This was like seven years ago. Then we decided to move to Twin Falls. But I still work there in Jackpot as a teacher. And we decided to move here. So we were moving from North Dakota, a thousand miles away, to Jackpot, Nevada, of all places in the world. I mean, that's a pretty weird place to go if you've been to Jackpot. And then moving here, and this happening to be the headquarters of CSN. And it was that move from even from North Dakota to Jackpot, then Jackpot to here, that was very big and God reaching out to me and softening my heart because when I lived here and worked in Jackpot, you know, driving an hour every day, on my way home to Every Man and Answer is on. And I used to listen to, to Every Man and Answer to make fun of it. And I would come back home, because I wasn't a Christian, I was a jerk atheist, and I, I would come back home and tell Adrian, like, you got to listen to this station on the, on the radio, as they say, like making fun of the stuff they were saying and listening to it as a joke just to keep occupied while I was driving. But then what, what was happening... I mean, a few other things happening, but my heart started to get softened, and there are some things I would hear that I couldn't make fun of, because it started to make sense a little bit, and I couldn't come home and make fun of it. And I kind of keep that to myself, because I, I wouldn't want to admit some of this is starting to, like, it's, it's not so, like, crazy, I don't know, funny, I don't know, whatever. And there are some other things that happened, but God moving me from, before I was even a Christian, from North Dakota to Jackpot to here, to where CSN is headquartered, and now going from making fun of CSN, now I'm on CSN, and that's the work of God right there. I mean, praise God. And uh, there's no way that happens without him. And, and this is, now Abraham went through, you know, the whole move and all that, but he didn't have a job offer or anything. I mean, he did it by faith in God's divine hand, putting us where we're located. But Abraham listened to him. None of that would have happened if he wouldn't have listened by faith. So that's a big faith success of Abraham. And it says that the, all uh, righteousness was accounted to Abraham because of his belief, because he listened to God's call. And secondly, Abraham trusted God's promises. He, he listened to God's call, trusted in his promises. And so Abraham was very worried that he didn't have a biological heir at the time, you know, very important culturally. And God spoke to him about that. God says in Genesis 15, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, him being Abraham, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. And so Abraham had no heir. He was, it says here in Romans, he's about a hundred years old. So is his wife, who had been barren her whole life. God says, You're going to have a biological son, a miraculous thing. And he says, look at the stars. That's your descendants. All the earth will be blessed through your family. And it says again, he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Like the account is like a deposit. Like have you ever checked your bank account and someone had deposited money in there? It doesn't happen that often. But it's amazing when it does. Like sometimes Adrian's mom will do that. And it's like, whoa. And it's kind of like, it's, Accounted to him for righteousness. It was deposited in there by his belief hey, that uh, you're old, you've never had any kids, but God says, I'm going to give you a biological son that through him, you know, all the families of the earth will be blessed and eventually leads to Jesus is where he's getting at. Hey, but uh, let's see. So God promised an heir and then he specifically promised Isaac, Abraham's son, that he give him a true son from his flesh with his wife Sarah, even though they were super old and that uh, they never had a son before, never had a baby of their own. Um, 
And God told Abraham as a sign of that promise, this is where circumcision comes from. And that is a sign of this promise. You need to get circumcised and everyone in your family. Now that takes some huge faith. Hey, uh, he's a grown man and God is saying, I will give you a son. And as a sign of this, you and all your male relatives are going to be circumcised. Hey, big faith right there. And here's the crazy part. When you read in Genesis, his male relatives did it. Hey, they all circumcised themselves too, or Abraham did it. So that's some big faith. To, to hear that and then do it. Little, I see what you did there. Yeah. Moving on. Uh, and then he also, Abraham obeyed God's commands. You know, he responded to his call. He trusted in his promises and obeyed God's commands. And it's not about if I should paraphrase this or read it, but it's written so beautifully, I want to read it. So let's, if you would, turn to Genesis 22. There's a lot of commands that God gave to Abraham, but this was the big one in Genesis 22. And it makes me very emotional now that, now that I have uh, kids, a son, a daughter, and it uh, gives you a different perspective on this. So Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 19, is you know the well-known Old Testament account of Abraham being asked to sacrifice his son Isaac after being promised a son and not being able to have any kids for a hundred years, and now he has one, and now God asks him to sacrifice him. And when we read this, we see Isaac is a type of Jesus. Like he, he, The New Testament says he's a shadow. All these things in the Old Testament are shadows of things to come. I remember one time in fourth grade, here's, here's how I conceptualize this. We did this thing in school where we sat on a chair and they shined a light on our face, and then someone drew our shadow on the wall on a piece of paper, and then we cut it out and hang it up on the wall. And even though you couldn't see anyone's face, you knew by the shape of their face that that's who it was. And that's what types of Jesus are. It's not the complete thing. You don't get to see all the details and you know what, what it actually is, but you can see the shape of it and that it, it's like something that Jesus did. And that's what happens here with Isaac. So Genesis 22. Now it came to pass that after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham... And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So here's where the type of Jesus already comes in. Take your only son, God's only begotten son, Jesus, Abraham's only son, Isaac, whom you love. God the Father loved God the Son and sent him anyways. Take your son whom you love, and offer him there as a burnt offering, just like God sent his begotten son, whom he loved, to be an offering for our sin. This is how Isaac is a type of Jesus. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, the lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and the knife, and the two of them went together. And so, like Jesus bore the cross on his back, Isaac is bringing the uh, sticks for the offering on his back. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. Kind of the same conversation God and Abraham had earlier. And this is the part that makes very emotional. Then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And imagine Isaac here, you know, being a, a young boy, maybe you know, 10, 12, somewhere in that, that area. And he knows they're going to make an offering. And he sees everything for the offering except the sacrifice. And, and I imagine just like, what's going to happen here? And he may be starting to think what's going to happen and maybe he's the sacrifice. I don't know. But it's a very emotional part of Scripture. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. The lamb, Jesus. So the two of them went together. And then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. 
But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, the angel of the Lord, that's God the Son before he's Jesus. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Okay. Pre-incarnate Jesus, God the Son, is say, says you've withheld, uh, not withheld your son from me. Earlier, God had said a sacrifice. So and here's a clear picture of the Trinity that Jesus is calling himself God. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. And so that's Abraham obeying God's commands. Faith successes. But again, no one in the Bible is perfect except for Jesus. And Abraham a couple maybe stumbles of faith. uh, Two in particular. Just go quickly through these. So when God had promised Abraham a son, a biological son, through his barren wife Sarah, who was very old, they both laughed about it, uh, that it wouldn't happen, that God couldn't do that. So they, they laughed about it. So that's one thing. Um, secondly, second faith failure is, and this is probably the bigger one, that when they were waiting for their biological son Isaac, they began to grow impatient, Abraham and Sarah. And Sarah told Abraham to have a, uh, go in with his servant Hagar and have a son with her. Instead of waiting for God's promise, they took it into their own hands and had a son who was not through Sarah, but through Hagar. And this was a common cultural practice in that time. And they had their son Ishmael, who was not of the promise, because they took things into their own hands. But even though there are a couple things right there, look at verse 20, now back in Romans 4. It says, He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. So even though Abraham may have stumbled a couple times, the pattern of his life was faithful to God by listening to his call, trusting his promises, obeying his commands. Even though there are some stumbles, Abraham always did what God told him to do. And that's true faith. True faith is not in our thoughts, but in our actions. And just like Abraham and Sarah laughed at God's promise, maybe we sometimes laugh at God's promise and not believe it, not think that he can do it. Maybe sometimes we get impatient waiting for God and take things into our own hands. But the thing is, again, the faith, your true faith is not in your thoughts, but in your actions. Not in what you think, but what you do. And even though they made it, might, might have stumbled a few times, they always held on to that faith and listened to what, what God said. And this is... Jesus explains this amazingly, like Jesus usually does. In Matthew 21, he gives this parable. Jesus says, A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not, but afterward regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, The first. Okay, so in, in this, this parable illustrates that our faith is in our actions, what we do in response to God, not necessarily in what we think. Because sometimes we don't believe what he says. Sometimes we hesitate. Or sometimes we try to take things in our own hands. But Jesus says in, the, in this parable, the first son said, I'm not going to go work today. But later on, he regretted saying that, and he actually went to work. So even though in his mind he said no, his actions later showed he listened. He was obedient. The other son said, yeah, I'm going to go work, and then he didn't do it. Who was the faithful one? Who did the will of his father? The one who went out and did the work, even though he didn't believe it at first, even though in his mind at first, just like Abraham, just like we can do, even though we can doubt things, 
even though we can laugh about it, even though we cannot trust God. It's about what we do that proves our faith. And often, rather than being on mission for Jesus as we're supposed to be, we want Jesus to be on mission for us. And we're supposed to be doing Jesus' work, but a lot of times we, we think of it a little backwards. And we have a list of things we want Jesus to do. Uh, we say, you know, Jesus, fix my marriage. Jesus, make my business successful. Jesus, heal me. Jesus, make my kid listen to me. Okay, and this list of things, that's our agenda, that we want Jesus to do. And we can ask those things. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that's our focus, is trying to get Jesus to do our mission, what happens when those things don't happen? When you pray, Jesus, fix my marriage, but now you're getting divorced. When you pray, Jesus, make my business successful, but now I'm going bankrupt. When you pray, Jesus, why am, or Jesus, heal me, but then you're dying of whatever you have. Or Jesus, uh, make my kid listen to me, but now your kid is going down the wrong path. When we make those things, Jesus doing our mission predominant, then our faith is a roller coaster. Because when we see him not doing the things that we're asking for, we're, we're looking for our faith in a place where it shouldn't be. Because Jesus never promised to fix those things. And the gospel isn't a self-help book. The gospel is the promise of salvation. And he may fix those things, he may not. And we can't always see what God is doing. We can't always perceive that. We don't know what he's doing. So this is vital for our faith, for it not to be a roller coaster. I'm super high on God this day, and now I'm super depressed about God, is to put our faith not on God's activity, but on God's identity. And not on what we perceive God is doing, pursuing our own needs and our own agenda, but on who God is and what He's already done for us through His Son, Jesus. When our faith is on who God is, not on what we perceive that He's doing, then we have a steady faith, like Abraham had, even though he laughed at the promises God gave him, even though he became impatient, the overall pattern of his life was a steady, unwavering faith, it says in Romans. So, put your faith in God's identity, not his activity. Be on mission for Jesus, not have him on mission for you. And that's Abraham's faith. And again, that's why Paul is bringing up Abraham in chapter 4 of Romans to show Abraham did some things, but originally the very first Abraham believed God and it was counted him for righteousness. He had faith. Okay, so now I'm uh, going to unpack a few things out of this chapter as well, not necessarily to do with Abraham, but looking at again this idea, faith versus works, what faith leads to and what works lead to. So first of all, faith leads to humility, works leads to boasting. And this is uh, verse 2. It says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not, not before God. And he talked about this a little bit last week, that because we're justified by faith, that leads to humility, because we didn't do anything. Jesus did it all. Being justified by works leads to boasting. If that's how you believe, you are justified. Okay, we don't do anything. And here, here's how I, I think about this. Now, if you're a baseball nerd, if, is anyone a baseball nerd? Talking to the wrong crowd here. Yeah. Now, I'm kind of a baseball nerd. I've kind of grown out of it. But if you follow baseball, there's like certain years in baseball that when you hear the year, something comes to mind. Like 1961, that's the year Roger Maris hit 61 home runs. 1927, that's the year Babe Ruth hit 60 home runs. 1941, that's the year Joe DiMaggio had his 56-game hitting streak in a row. Now, 1998, that was when I was in junior high. And if you follow baseball, 1998 is the home run chase. Okay, now there's been a lot of people who broke Roger Maris' home run record in a season, but that was the first time in like 30 years that people were approaching it, and it was very exciting at the time being a baseball fan because there were, going through the summer, three players that were projected to maybe break Roger Maris' home run record. It was Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, Ken Griffey Jr. And uh, this is after the baseball strike in 94, and people are getting back into baseball now because they're all, well, you don't need to go into that too much. This isn't a baseball crowd, but I'm going to tell it anyway. So uh, people were very excited that Roger Maris' home run record may be broken by one of these three, three players. And Mark McGuire is the one who did it first. Sammy Sosa broke it. Ken Griffey never did. I think he slowed down. Maybe got injured. I don't remember. But I watched Mark McGuire hit his 62nd home run of the season live as it happened. I was a big baseball fan. 
and it just barely went over the left field fence. It, like, just, it didn't even make it to the seats. It was one of the shortest home runs he hit all year. It was great excitement. You know, this is before they found out about steroids. Uh, so everyone was all excited about this. That someone broke the home run record that had been since the 60s. And it was a great time for baseball. Now, most, even if you're vaguely familiar with baseball, you maybe know that. Because that was a big deal. Mark McGuire was the star. He's the one who broke the record. Now, there's some people who are pretty big baseball nerds, and they'll know the pitcher that Mark McGuire hit the home run off of. It was Steve Traxel. And some people make this big thing about who's the pitcher that gave up famous home runs or famous hits. And so he, he's maybe part of the picture. But there's also another guy here, the guy who found the ball after it went over the fence. Who's that guy? It didn't even go into the seats. And so a groundskeeper found it, his name, Tim Forneris. He picked up the ball. Now, in our salvation, we're Tim Forneris. We're the guy who picks up the home run ball. He is not the star. He is not the one who did anything. He was in the right place at the right time to pick up the ball. And as Mark McGuire is the one who is the star, and this guy wasn't even on the field, he wasn't part of the game, he was in the right place at the right time. And so Jesus is the star. He's the one who did the work. We're some guy in the stands who caught the ball, and there's nothing to boast about. And says, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So this guy who found the ball, maybe he can tell his friends the rest of his life, yeah, I was the guy who found the Mark McGuire 60-second home run ball. So he can maybe brag about that, but it's not really like he had anything to do with McGuire hitting all those home runs. He was just there. So maybe he has a story to tell, but he's not the star of it. And that's, again, we are not the star of our salvation. We're not, the Bible is not about us, it's about Jesus. And Jesus is the star. He's the one who did the work, and we're in the right place at the right time, so to speak. That's right. And so, the true star, then, is the steroids. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but that's, if, if faith that leads to humility, because if we think we're that guy that really had nothing to do with it, not even the steroids, we are just that guy. There, there's nothing really to brag about with our salvation. That's why faith leads to humility. It works leads to boasting. Because if you did the work, you can boast about it. That's not Christianity. Secondly, faith leads to grace, and works leads to payment. So verse 4, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Faith leads to grace, works leads to payment. And so if you're a salvation by works kind of guy, if that's your belief, you can earn your way to heaven, you can follow the rules, do whatever, either religiously or non-religiously. Uh, your salvation is like this. It's like you're working all month, and your boss comes up to you and hands you a paycheck and says, Here, I got you a present. Hey, you didn't give me a present, you probably slap him in the face. Hey, you worked for that. That's not a gift. So you're not going to, I mean, you can be thankful for your boss for giving you employment, but when you work for it, it's not the same. You're not saved by grace, it says. To him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. And grace is the transforming power of Christianity. When we accept what Jesus has done for us, and the Holy Spirit lives in us, that grace is what transforms us. If we are saved by our works. There's no transformation. It's we're just getting what we deserve. And if we're getting what we deserve, if we work for it, if we earn our salvation, yeah, why worship a God who makes you work for your salvation? Because you're the God. You're the one who's doing the work. You're the star if you're earning your salvation. That's why Christianity is completely different because Jesus paid the price for forgiveness. And all the other religions, all the other worldviews, their God pays no price for forgiveness. We do it all ourselves. And then, again, if that's the case, works leads to payment. We're just getting our just rewards. And so this should lead us to a greater worship. Again, grace transforms us, motivates us, empowers us. And salvation without faith has no grace. So very important. Third of all, faith leads to blessing. Works leads to condemnation. So verse 5 through 8, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. It's a word blessed because our salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus. And that's a blessing because it's all done by him. Faith leads to blessing, works leads to condemnation. 
in a works-based salvation mentality, how do you ever know you've worked hard enough? How do you ever know you've done enough good things to be saved? And that's not a blessing, that's a condemnation. Number four, faith leads to equality, works leads to exclusivity. So verses 9 through 12, that's that big circumcision section, we won't read all that again, too much circumcision. Uh, but again, the point was that the circumcised and the uncircumcised are justified by faith. So that's equality. Faith leads to equality. Works leads to exclusivity. If you are saved by your works, some people are good enough to do it, some people are not. So there's division there. There's different groups. And we're equal. I'm no better than you because we're all saved by grace through faith. In any sort of works mentality religion, hey, non-Christian religions, Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, all that, all works-based mentality will lead to either pride or despair. You'll either be so proud that you can follow the rules that you think you're better than people, you're one of the 144,000 or whatever, or it leads to despair. You can never follow the rules. That guy's on the varsity team and I'm on the JV and I'll never be good enough. That's a works-based mentality. And that makes exclusivity. Only certain people can work hard enough to do it. So the true gospel, I talked about this last week, it rehumanizes everybody because there isn't that division of groups. We're all needing salvation by grace through faith. And because it, it, justification by works, again, leads to pride. And even non-believers do this. They, they may call it different terms, but it's all very spiritual. And so you know, I used to be an atheist a few years ago, and I always understand them a little bit, I think. And I think a lot of their objections... They're not unfounded. But let's say everyone has their way of justifying themselves. So just for example, maybe your religion, so to speak, is environmentalism. And you're going to justify yourself, giving yourself good legal standing in the sight of the earth by recycling, by riding your bike to work, by having solar panels, by living a green lifestyle. And if you feel like you've done those things good enough, that tends to lead to a looking down on people who don't. You're destroying the earth with your homer and your uh, diesel truck and uh, you're not recycling you have one garbage bin where is your recycle wait portlandia uh, was that in portlandia you're bringing your you're not bringing your uh, renewable or what is it called the, the the bags you buy to reuse if you don't yeah if you don't bring that to the grocery store you're destroying the earth you're not justified in their sight so if that's your religion so to speak if you don't live up to their rules you're not justified in their eyes. And everything is like that. We're not going to go into all that. But it always works like that, except true Christianity. Because it's not things you have to do. It's grace that you receive. And honestly, I think, though, this is a huge thing about Christianity. And I think Christians have shot themselves in the foot a little bit with this. Like, this should be what makes people want to come to Jesus. Because we are accepting or tolerant in a way that no one else is. Intolerant in a good way, not in like the, you need to accept me for whatever. But it, every other worldview that claims to be tolerant really isn't because there's a way to do things their way that if you're doing it good enough, they accept you. But true Christianity, the true gospel is that to be justified, it's by accepting Jesus. Like, for example, I was just reading this morning an article about someone who, she was a Christian but she was afraid to come out as a Christian, so to speak. Not because of what non-Christians would think, but because of what Christians would think about her. Because she didn't maybe live up to the traditional Christian lifestyle. And the reason why she got this idea was seeing uh, the, the attacks that Christians have made on Barack Obama, saying he's not a Christian because he says this, because he does this. I'm not going to get into that. That's maybe a whole other issue, really. But is seeing that there, Christians will come out and attack him and saying he doesn't do it right, he's not good enough. And that creates a culture where there's a bar. You have to live up to a certain standard. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing in Jesus' day. You have the religious, self-righteous people saying there, there's like a barrier to entry. You can't be saved by faith. You need to be saved by your works. In a lot of ways, that's what we're doing. It's creating like a barrier to entry to come to Jesus. Or even if you've come to Jesus saying, well, you didn't come to Jesus good enough because you shouldn't be doing things this way. And, you know, they're still speaking about sin. It's a complicated issue. But the fact that people can think, I'm more scared of Christians than non-Christians as a Christian, that can't be. And I like what Dave said this morning, that uh, this is a safe place. Come as you are. And if we want that for this fellowship, we have to believe that, that there's not a barrier to entry 
Anyone can come to Jesus. And everyone is in the process of being sanctified. And not to say, well, because you did this, you can't be a Christian anymore. That creates a culture of fear and a culture like the Pharisees had, what Jesus was absolutely against. And so that's, you know, faith leads to, uh, what is it? Faith leads to equality. Works leads to exclusivity. Number five, faith leads to certainty. Works leads to uncertainty. Verse 16, Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So faith leads to certainty, works leads to uncertainty. You kind of touched on this earlier. And when we are saved by what Jesus did, by faith in him, that's a guarantee. The Bible says, when you've laid down your life at Jesus' feet, accepted his payment for your sins, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you, transform you, and that's the guarantee of your salvation. A works mentality salvation never has a guarantee because you're never sure if you're good enough. And again, this is, it seems foundational to Christianity, but the dominant worldview in our culture is you're saved by your works. But that's not a good system. Finally, faith leads to strength, works leads to weakness. Verse 19 through 22. And not being weak in faith, he, being Abraham, did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Okay, figuratively speaking, they weren't able to have kids, not like they're literally dead. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform and therefore was accounted to him for righteousness. And so faith leads to strength, works leads to weakness, and we have strength because the object of our faith, Jesus, okay, that gives us strength. We know all those promises are true. The work's already been done. And so faith versus works, that's, that's the picture. Faith leads to all these good things. Works leads to all these things that are impossible to keep, really. And so I was talking to uh, my boy Dustin here last week after church, and I said I was going to steal an illustration from him because I'm like goodwill hunting, like... Uh, you know how to critique a picture, but you can't paint a painting. You know, Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, like I, I, I read stories, and I don't think I have that many life experiences. But here's Dustin gave me this great picture of uh, justification by faith versus works. And we have a huge privilege in this church. CSN is right on the other side of that wall and goes out nationally. How many stations, CSN? 370. 370. That's amazing. From this church. And it takes. A lot of work to keep that running. And my boy Dustin back there, he is largely responsible for keeping CSN running, at least in the western part of America. Is that right? Is that accurate? Pretty accurate? Yeah. He goes to all the different towers and does maintenance and sets up radio stations. And uh, he was telling me last week about a site he went to in western Oregon. And he had to, uh, the, the radio station place, whatever, I'm not too technical, was at the top of this mountain. And he had to get up there to work on it, to do the maintenance for CSN. And this is Western Oregon. It was windy and rainy. And they go on the back roads to the back roads like to, to get up these mountains and uh, to keep CSN on the air. And so he said they, they went up this road going up into a mountain to get to the job site. And there's a ton of trees in the way of the road. And he said there's one guy is sitting there like trying to hack through all these trees with a, with a handsaw and just wasn't getting anything done. And Dustin, being a smart guy, takes a, brings a chainsaw wherever he goes. And so he comes out with a chainsaw, and he's like, hey, let's, let's do this. And so chainsaw and Dustin, plus this guy with his hacksaw, they weren't really getting anywhere. Tons of trees. And there's a lot of people trying to get up to this job site, and guys would keep showing up. And uh, after a little while, and a bunch of people with chainsaws, he said there were like 15 guys trying to cut through all these trees in the road with chainsaws, like a full logging crew kind of thing. Like Dustin looks kind of lumberjacky, so you know that that works. And they were cutting through all these trees to try to get to the top of the mountain where the the job site was. And so they finally get through it, like t- after hours and hours, like four hours, cutting through these trees. So they move up a little bit farther up the mountain, and then there's a bigger tree in the way at a weird angle. And now it's like life or death because to cut this tree down, who knows where it's going to roll? Like, is it going to crush them and roll over all their trucks? Are they going to die? And he said, they're trying to figure out how to get past this tree. And some guy rolls up 
and says, why don't you take the other road that's already clear? And uh, that, to me, pictures justification works versus, versus, versus faith. Because everyone's trying to get to the top of this hill. That's salvation. And you can cut through and work and work and work. And there's more work to be done once you're past the work. Once you think cutting through all those trees for four hours, they probably thought, okay, we're clear to go. But then there's an even bigger obstacle in the way. And trying to save yourself by the things you do is like that. There's always going to be something in the way. There's going to be a bigger obstacle. And it's probably even going to kill you. If they were going to cut down that tree, they might have died. Who knows? He's in danger of life and limb, putting CSN on the air. And uh, there's always something there. Um, And even if they got to the top of the mountain... Probably they're all spent. Like, let's just call it a day. We'll come back up tomorrow. All our energy is gone. And so, theoretically, I mean, all illustrations break down at some point. This one kind of breaks down here. Because in the Bible, there's no way you can work your way to the top of the mountain. But even if you could, you're going to spend all your energy trying to get there. And you're never going to get there. But then justification by faith is the other path. It's already cleared. All the hard work is done. Yeah, there's still work to be done at the top. But they're already where they need to be. And that's justification by faith. There is still works involved. Like I said at the beginning, sometimes we underemphasize works. There is still works. We'll talk about that in a second very quickly. But all the hard work of getting up there, that's already done. So then you're all fully energized, can do the work that needs to get done. Now everyone is trying to get up that mountain. Even even if you don't believe in God, there's some sort of mountain you're trying to climb in order to feel justified, whether it's in your own eyes or someone else's eyes. Hey, but the work is done, but like Jesus said, the path is narrow and few people find it. And you're going to work and work your whole life just to end up in eternity in hell. Not because you're a bad person, but because that's where everyone goes. Because no one, unless you're justified by grace through faith in Jesus. It's not a good and bad. It's perfect and imperfect. And only Jesus has already cleared the path. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And very quickly now, I know this has gone on a while, there is still works in the uh, Christian life. There is, it's not all faith. It's not, I believe in Jesus, now I sit back and do whatever I want. There's still work to be done. Now, very clearly, works have nothing to do with our justification, with our salvation. But what works have to do with is our sanctification. And this we'll talk more about in Romans as we get farther into it. This is becoming more and more like Jesus every day by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit because of grace. And this is where the the work comes in. So uh, sanctification kind of makes this spiritual maturity we sometimes talk about and going uh, kind of working out your salvation with fear and trembling. So it's not just sit back and don't do anything because Jesus did all the work. He did all the work for salvation very clearly. He cleared the path to the mountain, but there's still, we are to advance Jesus' mission on this earth and be his body. And so there's some stages of spiritual maturity, and this is just roughly, this is, this is kind of condensing some biblical information. But you have the birth stage. This is being born again. Jesus talks about this. We're born physically, but then we need to be born spiritually because we're born disconnected from God. And that's justification. That's all Jesus. You cannot make yourself be born. Yeah, Jesus did the work for that. And so you are born spiritually. That's a work of God. But then when you've been spiritually reborn, moves on to sort of the infancy stage, we'll say. And that's uh, like in 1 Peter 2, 2, it says to crave the pure milk of the word as a baby craves milk. And that's the infancy stage of sanctification. Your job then is to read the Bible, pray, get to know Jesus, get to know your gifts. And that's really the top priority. But a lot of times people don't really get past that stage because it involves work. And even the author of Hebrews Uh, in the New Testament yells about this, saying we should be beyond this now. You should already be teachers instead of just trying to like learn. I mean, there's always things to learn. Again, this can be kind of deep, just summarizing. But a lot of people never get past this stage because they don't seek the gifts the Spirit has given them, and it takes work in our sanctification. But, you know, becoming a new Christian, being spiritually born, reading the Bible, praying, figuring out what the gifts the Holy Spirit has given you, then it moves on to, okay, now there's some work. The adult stage, we'll say. Okay, adult stage. Sounds dirty, but it's not. Uh, and this is using the gifts the Holy Spirit has given you 
to further God's kingdom, to advance his kingdom, not your own. And the Holy Spirit has given us all gifts to use, whether it's a supernaturally spirit-empowered gift or just something you're already good at, that's to be used for his kingdom. And if you're not serving anywhere using your gift, that indicates a spiritual immaturity unless you're a baby Christian, you know, just getting to know Jesus. And so there's a serving to be the body of Christ. And then that matures into the elder stage and discipling. You know, not that you're perfect and completely sanctified, but you've read the Bible, you know, read the Bible a lot. You've been serving, using your gifts, and then helping other people to move along to that stage as well. So there is, you know, this gets a lot deeper than this, but just, again, because we underemphasize faith and we also overemphasize faith, justification, sanctification, or not sanctification, justification is all by faith. But we do have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and do things for God's kingdom. So in conclusion, Christianity, it's not all about faith and it's not all about works. Our justification is all about faith, however. That's all because of what Jesus did. Because he entered into human history to be a perfect sacrifice, to be the spotless lamb who would take away the sins of the world, to be that sacrifice. And God has always saved people by faith, from Abraham, the very first one, to you today. And this idea, again, predominant, that we're saved by the things we do, that's not what the Bible teaches. It's all by faith. And if you don't know Jesus, are you trying to save yourself by your works? And the answer, yes, everyone is in some way. Not necessarily to please the Christian God, but there's something in your life that you're trying to gain the approval of, that you're working very hard to be seen as justified in the eyes of whatever that is. And you're never going to be good enough. There's no confidence. Remember, works leads to boasting. Works leads to payment. Works leads to condemnation. Works leads to exclusivity. Works leads to uncertainty. Works lead to weakness. And all the working you're doing is never going to get you what you're seeking. But faith in Jesus leads to humility. It leads to grace, blessing, equality, certainty, and strength. And if you do know Jesus, do you fully trust Him for your salvation? Do you truly believe this is a justification by grace, letting that transform you and not working to get up the hill, but knowing that you're already there because of what Jesus has done? And are you working for his kingdom after receiving his salvation? Are you maturing spiritually, uh, working on your salvation with fear and trembling? Finally, one last thing here in verses 23 through 25. Let's read that again and see... uh, Let's just read it first. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. So it says right here, we receive salvation by believing that Jesus was raised from the dead. And where have our works got us? All of our struggling, all of our trying to gain salvation, where has that got us? It says right here, Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses. Our works killed God. God came to this earth to pay for the works we're trying to do to make ourselves righteous on our own abilities. That's where our works lead us. But Jesus' works bring life. In a way, we are saved by work, by the work of Jesus. And that brings life. It says He was raised because of our justification. Our works bring death. Jesus' works bring life. Let's pray. Hey, Father, thank you that our salvation is all through the work of your son, Jesus. That we don't have to work to gain your approval, that we already have it. That you have already died for us, Jesus, and paid for our sins. And that you've sent the Holy Spirit to us to guarantee our salvation. And Jesus, if there's anyone here, anyone listening who doesn't know that, who's trying to work so hard to be seen as righteous, and whatever eyes they want to be seen as righteous, and I pray that you'd send the Holy Spirit to soften their hearts right now to think about that they will never receive what they're looking for. They'll keep working and working. It will never get there because the work is already done, but the path is narrow. So lead us on that path, God. And even when that path is cleared for us and we have our salvation, help us to mature and work for your kingdom and be the body of Christ on this earth, doing your work, advancing your kingdom, Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, home of CSN. 
If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship or give us a call at 800-357-4226. There's also a video of today's teaching available on our website, theriverchristianfellowship.com, and then click the media button. Don't forget to catch the evening service at 7 p.m. Mountain Time and tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship live on CSN.